Well, please take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. As you're turning there, the title for our study this morning is Go for Lunch. Now, as Kathy was um, uh, typing this out and uh, putting this together for me, she was very uh, uh, kind of humorous in telling me that she had to be careful not to say, Go for Lunch. Uh, that would be a very short sermon today. This is launch, not lunch, just for your record. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be looking specifically at the first two verses this morning. Let me read those for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we begin our study of this magisterial letter to believers in all ages, let me remind you of the theme of this little six-chapter epistle that we've identified in weeks past, and now we'll begin unpacking in weeks to come Ephesians speaks of the work and the wealth of God in Jesus Christ. The work and the wealth of God in Jesus Christ. That's a theme that we're going to see unpacked over and over, applied, explained, nuanced, and explored. And I'm confident. The more I study this, this epistle, the more I read it over and over, I am confident that as we come to listen each week, Our imaginations are going to be informed. Our imaginations are going to be illumined with a cosmic amazement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to the title for a moment. Go for lunch. Full confession, I was a space junkie when I grew up uh, as a boy. I, I, I remember my father waking me up in the middle of the night to watch on that kind of rough black and white uh, distorted television with rabbit ears and aluminum foil wrapped around the rabbit ears. Neil Armstrong is walking on the moon and, and I remember watching the launches and uh, getting a space helmet for Christmas and, and laying upside down on the couch thinking about that one day when I would be going to the moon or Mars or Pluto or someplace beyond. I loved, I was infatuated with space. The title Go for Launch, though, is a, is a specific title. It's, it came from the space program in the 1960s. It was a scientific jargon or slang way to say from the mission control uh, to, the, to all who were present in the flight plan moments before the launch that it was ready to take off. In the final stages of a countdown, the flight director would ask each group who were uh, each department, each location, etc., if they were ready for go, ready for launch go through kind of a roll call as it were Houston Houston's a go Cape Canaveral Cape Canaveral's a go we have a go we're we're a go here I just looked up um, and I'm not going to tell you all the uh, these acronyms stand for but but I looked up and then heard the original audio this week just out of my curiosity of Apollo 13's roll call for go for lunch um and after each one of the, these uh, designations, he would say booster, and they would say go for launch, go, go, go. Booster, retro, FIDO, these all stand for different, different, different uh, departments like flight dynamics officer, FIDO. 
Retro, Fido, Guidance, Surgeon, Ecom, GNC, Guidance, Navigation, and Control Systems, Telmu, that's Telemetry, Electrical, and EVA Mobility Unit, Control, Procedures, Inco, FAO, Network. After all of these, he would roll them, uh, do a roll call, and they always, they would all come back and say, go, go, go. And then at the end, after all of that, he would tell everyone and the astronauts listening in the capsule, go for lunch. In other words, everything's in the mixer. Everything's ready. Everything's ready to go. Well, these first two verses of Ephesians are a bit of that kind of roll call to say we are go for a launch into this epistle. We are ready to study, ready to talk, ready to think through the issues he's going to unpack. His roll call goes something like this. Author, divine confirmation, readers, identifiers, descriptors, setting, blessings, divine sourcing, divine enabling, divine credentialing, all are go. So in verses one and two, Paul announces that everything is ready for everything he's going to say to the Ephesians in these six chapters. Now, a little context. Remember the importance we looked at last week of chronology and geography in our study of any letter in the New Testament, any book of the Bible, actually. Last week, we looked a lot at the um, geography of what was happening in Paul's third missionary journey, where Ephesus was, where he wrote from over across the um, sea in Rome in a prison. Let me give you just a little high-altitude calendar, the chronology of what's going on. I'll make sure that on the notes that we publish every week that you'll have all this. Just listen so that you can know kind of the relationships between these years. In AD 57 to 59, those two and a half years, Paul returns to Jerusalem. He's arrested, taken prisoner. He's taken up to Caesarea by the sea where he stays for another two years. There, between 59 and 60, he appears before Felix and before uh, 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 Agrippa um, and appeals to Caesar in Rome. Ultimately, he's taken by ship to Rome A.D. 60 to 62, he's under house arrest in Rome. Writes letters to the Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and to Philemon during that time. That's A.D. 60 to 62. Ephesians probably being around 61. A.D. 62 to 64, he's released. A lot of speculation about his release. Most scholars believe he actually went up toward Europe into Spain during that time. He returns to Rome. He's immediately arrested again. And then he's thrown into the, Mamer, the teen prison, the, the, uh, the uh, judgmental prison, the nasty place that was a hole in the ground. And that's where he writes First and Second Timothy and Titus. And then in 64, he's martyred. Pretty quick progression. It's during that imprisonment, though, in Rome between 60 and 62 when he pens this letter. In Acts 28, verses 30 to 31, we find out a little bit about this imprisonment. Luke says, And Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcome, welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So during those two years when he was under what we call house arrest, he was actually renting his own place. They, they didn't provide food and uh, uh, shelter for prisoners. You had to pay for your own or you didn't eat. Friends outside had to help you. But this was under house arrest. He rented his own quarters and was probably guarded by a Roman soldier day and night. 
He would have vision of that Roman soldier day and night, which will inform the way he talks about a believer's own armor in chapter 6. But he's unhindered. People can come and go. And he writes the letter to the Ephesians. As he launches this letter, as he gets us ready in these first two verses, this is not just preparatory, but this is deep, wonderful water. These are the two verses the verses at the beginning of most epistles that people kind of read quick to get to the good stuff. Can I encourage you? These first two verses are the good stuff. And we'll see that together. We're gonna unpack it and look at three introductory considerations for studying Ephesians. We have to have these before we are go for study or go for lunch. Three introductory considerations for studying Ephesians. He basically tells us what we need to understand this book. Three introductory considerations for studying Ephesians. The first is this, and that is not a typo up there. The authoritative writer to the Ephesians, and the writer has a capital W and a small w. And I think you'll probably understand immediately what I mean by that. Because the writer of, to the Ephesians was the capital W, Holy Spirit, and also the small w, the Apostle Paul, the authoritative writer to the Ephesians. He begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, conventional modern letters possess an odd feature. If you think about it, the signature is at the end. If you don't have, now, for some of you, this won't make sense because you only know letters that are by email, and we'll talk about email in a moment. But if you get a letter in the mail, and there's no, uh, there's maybe a return address, but there's no no name on the outside of the letter for the return, and you open it up and it says, dear so-and-so, dear Rick, and you don't know who it's from, you're always going to flip to the very end to see how it's signed. Who is this from? Well, that's a problem. And it wasn't a problem in the ancient Near East. They, I think rightfully, signed their letters at the beginning, which makes all sorts of sense. Now, in email, we almost have the same thing, right? Something shows up in your email and it says, from so-and-so, and it tells you right in the description, right in the, in the, uh, 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 the, the title, who this thing is from with, with some kind of subject line. Well, this is more like an email than a conventional letter. We know from the very beginning who has signed this letter, and it is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. I said a minute ago that Paul was in prison. He's writing from prison in Rome, back to Ephesus. He answers the question that they were going to ask them, why should we listen to you? Now, this is important. Think about this. If you were told by someone, here's how to live, here's how to think, here's the theology to understand, and by the way, my believing that, my thinking that, my talking about that has made me a prisoner. Would that not be a little bit problematic? Look over at chapter 3, verse 1 for a moment. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner, he doesn't say of Rome, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. We find out a lot there that these Ephesians were largely Gentiles with some Jews sprinkled in. 
Ephesians 3, 2, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. So even though he's in prison, he understands he's there because of the gospel and his stewardship is for the people, even in the writing of this epistle. Look down at verse eight in chapter three. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Even though he's in prison, his imprisonment has not stopped him from ministering and this book is one of the proofs and evidences of that. We looked a few weeks ago at his conversion in Acts chapter nine. God informed Ananias in that, in that chapter, the Lord said to him, go for it, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So Paul has been tapped on the shoulder by God, but that tap on the shoulder did not exclude suffering and included his imprisonment. Romans eleven thirteen. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles and I magnify my ministry. So Paul is in prison, but he's in prison by the will of God. And he's in prison for the benefit of the Ephesians. And knowing Paul's travel schedule, knowing Paul's busy ministry, God had to put him into jail. He graciously slowed him down so that he could write and entertain people with theological questions and minister. He immediately points to his apostleship. Paul, an apostle. It's an interesting word. Apostolos in the Greek. Just simply means one who is sent, a messenger. Paul is pointing to the fact that his authority was not self-generated. I'm not doing this on my own. I am sent. I am the waiter, not the chef. It was ordained by God. He was sent by God according to God's own sending as we learned in Acts chapter nine. God told Paul, you're going to represent me. You're gonna represent me to the Jews and the Gentiles. It's gonna include suffering. You'll end up dying because of me. This issue of authority is no small issue. Paul is starting by saying, look, I'm an apostle. I was sent by God by God's will, in the name of Christ Jesus. Why is this so important? Why is this so important? The issue of authority is the central issue in how you and I live our lives. Who you listen to and why. Why does someone hold authority in your spiritual pilgrimage? Why does someone hold authority in your worldview and in your thinking? Listen, In the church, we are always competing with God's voice for authority in our hearts and in our minds. There are things that want to elbow God out of our position of authority, his position of authority in our lives. Psychology wants to do that. What's really wrong with people, in other words. Sociology wants to do that. That's the flavor of the day. How we think about societal issues, politics, Facebook can have authority in our lives. Twitter, your friends, your family, that latest article, especially your feelings and your own intuition can compete with God for authority in what's true and what's expected in your life. Let me give you a kind of a crazy thing to think about, okay? Let's say you were walking in this morning 
And as you were walking in, there was a guy out in the atrium, none of you knew, never seen him before. And he's setting up a table with all of these books and bulletins that, and, and brochures and articles that he's written. And he lays them all out. You know nothing about him, but you pick up something and immediately the title alerts you, mm, I don't know if that's true. Ooh, that seems kind of wacky. But he sets up in the atrium and everyone walks by. They're picking up things, going in and out. And none of us on pastoral staff, none of the elders, none of the deacons, none of the ushers say anything to him. Would you not see that as slightly problematic? Can I just confess to you? That's what I feel like as one of your pastors every day. Facebook and Twitter and blogs and the internet and books and voices are always speaking into God's flock here, creating all sorts of havoc. I'm weary of learning how so many in our church body can be influenced by voices to whom you have wrongly assigned authority outside of the pages of Scripture. Only God through his word has authority over our lives, over our worldviews, over our perspectives. And friends, just because it says so on the internet doesn't mean it is so. That has to do with God. That has to do with scripture. That has to do with science and viruses. It's just shocking how easily our granting of authority is stolen from people. And Paul begins by saying, I want you to know I have authority. I have been sent, sent from God. Look at what else he says. I've also been sent by the will of God in the name of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. I'm sent of Christ Jesus. He's the sender and it's according to God's will. You go back to Acts 9 and that's exactly what he said. I am giving you my purpose to go and to spread the good news to the Gentiles and the Jews about the gospel. Look down very quickly at the end of verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This, these first two verses are just absolutely lathered with authority. Listen to what I'm going to say, he says, because what I'm saying is from God. This informs us that Paul is speaking for God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're gonna make much of this in the coming weeks, but notice in verse one, he calls the second person of the Trinity Christ Jesus, see that? Look at the end of verse, uh, of the, of verse one, Christ Jesus. And look at the end of verse two, Jesus Christ. See that? That's, that's significant. Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Most of us say Jesus Christ and we think that Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not. Christ is a designation that he's the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And so he begins to a group of Gentiles by announcing, I know the Messiah for not only Jews, but the whole world. And it is Jesus of Nazareth. He leads off. The tip of the spear is his messianic identity. Christ, who is Jesus. Christ, who is Jesus at the beginning and, and end of verse one. And then he goes to the more familiar, Jesus, who is the Christ at the end of verse two. Christ, the Messiah. 
Again, leading with authority. Paul is a sent one of the Messiah, who is Jesus. And this is according to God's specific calling and will. He has authority as the writer to the Ephesians. And we also know that the writer to the Ephesians was not only Paul, but the Holy Spirit himself, right? So this has canonicity authority, and it has personal authority all wrapped up in one. Every part of Scripture, according to Peter, Peter's testimony, 1 Peter 1, every, and, for, and 2 Peter 1, every part of Scripture has the signature of the writer in earth and the writer from heaven. So the authority of the writer is where he starts with. I'm not just writing to you as someone with an opinion. I'm writing to you as someone who is sent from God, by God, for God, to tell you about God. Secondly, we find the faithful readers of Ephesians. The faithful readers of Ephesians. In the middle of the verse, to, this is the address. We, we already got the from, now we get the to. To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So after he signs the letter, he then addresses it. First, he identifies these recipients as saints. This is an interesting word. It is a workhorse word in the Greek New Testament. Hagios or hagios or hagios in the plural to the saints, this is plural here. It's a term that's most often used for believers, more often used than for believers in the New Testament than any other term. Saints. Literally, you could say holy ones, set aside ones, sanctified ones. Now, every time this word is used, all, by the way, this, use, this word hagias is used of implements in the temple. It's used of uh, the, uh, uh, the priest's it has um, the priestly office. It has a way that it's used of things other than people, but every time hagios is used of people, it always means consecrated to God, holy, pure, reverent, set aside. So it has a moral dimension and a spatial dimension. What I mean by that is the moral dimension, we are to be holy like God is holy morally. But it has a spatial dimension. What I mean by that is it means that these people have been set aside from the world to God. They are owned by him, set apart for him, set apart to him, uniquely owned by him. When you look at the what we call the semantic domain or all the ways this verse is used of believers in the New Testament, it comes down to three areas. A believer's personal holiness, Romans 12, 1, we find that out and Ephesians 1, 4, we'll come back to that. Also of a spiritual set-apart community, members of the church, 1 Corinthians 6 talks about that. Ephesians 1, 18, we'll come back to that. And thirdly, the overwhelming predominant use of this refers to members of a visible local body, we find that in Acts chapter 9, verse 13. You know, why are you coming after me by coming after the holy ones? Acts 26, Romans 1, 7, over and over. This, it's used as those who are members of a visible local church, a local body. And as usual, context determines how, to, how that's to be taken. So I think all of threes, uh, three of these come into uh, play here in verse 1. But I think he's also talking about 
just the people who are saved at Ephesus. We know that because look at the next phrase. Saints who are at Ephesus or literally in Ephesus. Now, without going into a long dissertation, that little phrase, who are at Ephesus or in Ephesus, has more debate about it than any other textual issue in the New Testament. And you say, why? Well, interestingly enough, and for, for my Bible geek friends, let's just have a quick moment on the textual issue. Uh, Paul was very personal in all of his letters in the New Testament. He speaks of people. He gives names. He says, I, I enjoyed staying at so-and-so's house. Tell so-and-so to get along with this other person and on and on. And yet, none of that shows up in Ephesians. But Paul spent three years in Ephesians. He greets no one in this book. He had never been to Rome and he greets a whole chapter worth of people at the end of Romans 16. Also, Paul's letters typically address very specific problems that he discusses in the church. And some would say he does not do that in Ephesians. I would push back on that. I think he... He does talk so much about unity that it indicates that unity would have been a problem. Why are these things significant? Because as we learned last week, Paul spends three years in Ephesus ministering according to Acts 20, 31. So why would he be so general and so impersonal with a church with which he was so familiar? Is that a good question? I, I think it's a great question. Some say this was merely a circular letter with a fill-in-the-blank for the city. Now, this is not as crazy as it sounds because three of the earliest copies we have of this letter, P90, P46, Sinaiticus, and Vaticanus in particular, do not contain the word in Ephesus. By the way, those are not the earliest and those are not the best copies we have of Ephesians, but we do have copies that either are left blank or say to the Laodiceans or Colossians or another letter, another city. So many scholars conclude that this was a circular letter intended to go to all the churches with a put the name of the city in the first two verses and you've got a personal letter to them. Uh, frankly, that, that doesn't bother me at all. I do believe though that the copy we have was written to the Ephesians specifically. Ephesians chapter three, verse two. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which is given me for you, he recognizes that these were specific people who he had been with and who heard him. Ephesians three thirteen. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Very personal. Don't be upset that I'm in prison. I'm here for your glory and the gain of God. I don't think he was introducing himself, in other words, to these readers, but merely reminding him that his imprisonment was for their glory. And even though he does address, does not address a specific problem per se, I think the heart of the epistle and the treatise on unity indicates that there was such disunity in this church, he needed to address it, and it was indeed a problem. So Paul may have indeed intended this as a circular letter, but he did intend it for the Ephesians. 
And there's a name I wanna introduce you to because you're gonna hear this name a lot in our study of Ephesians, Harold Honer, uh, the, probably the, the, the leading expert on Ephesians has written a thousand page commentary on Ephesians. I, I commend it to your study. It is excellent and expensive. He says this, although it may lack the personal warmth, Ephesians may lack the personal warmth of some of Paul's epistles, it is reasonable to accept that the apostle wrote this letter to the believers at Ephesus where he had an effective ministry in previous years and possibly even to the surrounding regions to which he had not ministered directly, end quote. So I like the fact that he wrote it to the Ephesians and intended it to go beyond that to all of Asia Minor, so he wrote it more generally. Beyond all that, this is easy. This is the copy of the letter to the Ephesians that God inspired to put in our canon So there's certainly a divine intention that this was going to the Ephesians. And I don't want to get ahead of God. If he canonized and authorized this copy of this letter for our Bibles, I'm quite content to say that he intended for us to believe it was to the Ephesians. And I trust you are as well. Then he identifies them further. They weren't just at Ephesus, but who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Comes back to that Messiah who is Jesus. This word pistos is, is faithful can be taken in two ways and we see it taken in multiple ways, these both, both of these ways in the New Testament. First, in a passive sense, meaning one who is faithful or trustworthy. It's used often in the, in the um, uh, parables where Jesus says one who is trustworthy, who is faithful. And it doesn't necessarily mean believing or having saving faith. That's what the word pistos can mean. Another is active, namely one who trusts in another, that is who believes God and the gospel. In Ephesians, Paul is not contrasting faithful and unfaithful saints. He is describing saints who are believers in Christ Jesus. So in this sense, I think the faithful are those who believe in Christ, those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Now, quick footnote, the the phrase Christ Jesus, those, that title is loaded. And we're gonna come back and plumb some of those depths in verse three. He comes back to it and adds the lordship of Christ in there. So we're gonna have a bit of our study directed to that next week. So just hold that in your mind and pencil for a little bit. Our solidarity in Christ is the connective tissue of the whole book. In Christ Jesus, we are in him He calls him the Messiah in whom we live and move and have our existence. From the very beginning of our study in Ephesians, the question must be asked, if we are indeed believers who exercise faithfulness to Christ Jesus. If you are, praise God. If you're not, I wanna invite you. You you must and you can submit yourself to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who promises you what we'll see in a moment, grace and peace and everything you need to be satisfied in this life. You can become a Christian, a follower of Jesus today by trusting that his death substitutes for yours, that his resurrection gives you hope for eternity and that his love and faithfulness are are directed toward you in an inviting way to come and believe him. 
Now, before we go on, I, I wanna show you something that I think Paul is very much intending here. He talks about the two worlds or the two spheres in which every believer lives. In that one verse, he identifies the saints who are in Ephesus or literally at Ephesus and also in Christ. Very important descriptions. You can say we are believers who live in Kansas City and also live in Christ Jesus. Learning how to live in the world and in Christ in both dimensions is the heart and the significant aim of Ephesians. Do you understand we're in the world and not of it? Do you understand we have to deal with life as citizens of our city and also life as citizens of heaven? Are you constantly measuring and battling between the the balance of living in both worlds? You are a citizen of the Kansas City Metroplex if you're part of Mission Road Bible Church. But if you're a Christian, you're also a citizen of heaven. You are in Christ as real and as tangibly as you are in Kansas City. Those are the readers. They're in Christ and in Ephesus. We're in Christ and in Kansas City. And we can listen with the same ear. And then finally, our last introductory consideration from Paul, the authoritative writer to the Ephesians, the faithful readers of the Ephesians, and thirdly, the divine engagement in Ephesians. This is really, really important. Verse 2. This is kind of one of the ones we skim over. Some version of this is at the beginning of all Paul's letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we rush past that and get into chapter verse three and verse four and divine election and predestination. And then we think the real stuff has come. Can I just ask you to pause? Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is so important. It's the key that turns the ignition switch to understand everything that follows in Ephesians. Grace and peace. Theological significance in these two words. Grace and peace are unearned, unmerited gifts from God. A little head start. Paul will use the word grace 12 times in Ephesians and the word peace eight times in Ephesians. Just a little footnote, he uses the term grace 95 times in his epistles. 95 times. Do you think it's important to him? This is far more than a greeting. It is an extension of spiritual blessing, which he'll begin unpacking in verse 3. Let's look very briefly at both these. Grace. What is grace? Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. It's divine, unmerited favor. Now, to just get a glimpse of this, can you just, can we get, do a preview? Look over at chapter two for a moment. Verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, there's another wonderful ministry he extends to us. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Meaning, by grace, there it is, You have been saved. He keeps going. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing 
riches of his grace. How? In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And it's through faith. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works. That no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so we would walk in him. He starts by saying, I want God's grace to be extended to you. And then he will tell us in in chapter two, verses eight and nine, that this grace is not anything we can grab or earn. It's God's unmerited gift and favor. You and I can never do enough or work hard enough where God will finally say, they've passed the test and I'll give them what they want and what they need. He does that on his own. His divine prerogative is there. That's the foundation of what we're gonna study in predestination and an election in the coming weeks. I love the fact in verse seven of chapter two that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. We're trophies of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you don't understand the gift of God in Christ Jesus, you will never understand the access to grace that we have. He also has peace, grace and peace. Just a little uh, preview as well, Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace. If you underline things in your Bible, that is an underlining statement. God himself is our peace. And then he talks about the division who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, together in one and broke down the dividing wall. Chapter two, verse 15. He abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that he himself might make the two into one new man, establishing, thus establishing peace. Ephesians two seventeen. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. So in Ephesians 2, 14, 15, and 17, we see that this peace has two dimensions. Peace with each other and peace with God. We also should be, verse three of chapter four, diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We're to be stewards of peace. And I love in Ephesians 6, one of the last things he tells us about being defensive in our own battle against demonic forces have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel and he says this the gospel of peace the good news of peace and then he closes the whole letter Ephesians 6 23 peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ let's pull this together grace to you and peace why grace and peace if you boil down grace and you boil down peace, listen, grace is what we most need and peace is what we most want. Every pursuit you and I make is somehow to make our lives less stressful and more peaceful. Peace with God, peace with others, peace peace with ourselves. That's what we want. That's what we strive after. That's what we 
we seek to implement in our lives and grace is what we need most, which we can never get. He begins by saying, grace and peace, the two things you want and need most are available, are accessible. Clinton Arnold writes, in his introductory greeting, Paul calls on God to pour out his provision of grace on the readers, a provision that's the hallmark feature of the new covenant. He also prays for peace to be upon them. This too is one of the prophetic principal blessings, rather, of the new covenant. It's interesting that everything Ezekiel talks about this in Ezekiel 37, 26, that what we need and what we want are grace and peace and that's given to us. The key to take away here is that these divine blessings come, look at the verse, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two members of the Trinity are mentioned here in verse two, Father and Son. By the time we finish with verse 14, all three of the members of the Trinity will be involved in our salvation and enjoyment of it. Paul tells us that to hear the words of this epistle, look at the last part of verse two, is to hear from God our Father and from the Lord. Now we in the kurios, now we find out that he's the master. He's not only the savior, he's the one to whom we submit our lives. To hear from God himself. In short, grace is what we need most. Peace is what we seek most. Both are found in God. Both are demonstrated and given to us in the gospel. And that's exactly what Ephesians pours out and explains to us. Grace and peace. Listen, if you're not doing it now, you will. It's interesting we read Psalm 88 this morning. Have troubled souls and troubled hearts. And we so desire peace well that peace comes from God's extension in grace and if it's only God who gives it and only God who grants it how then can we get it the simple answer is by believing by believing that it's true by asking God for his gracious gift back to Ephesians 2 verse 8 for by grace you have been saved, that's what God gives, through what? Faith, through believing. This is the most stunning reality to Paul in Romans, in Galatians, in Ephesians, and in Colossians, and it's this. God gives us all that we need and everything we don't deserve by believing that he gives us everything we need and we don't deserve. And I can't wait to get to chapter 2 to unpack that even more. So verse three, verse two rather tells us that this is a divine engagement with God. Our experience of grace and peace and the blessings that are gonna begin flowing in verses three and four, look at the, the, the signatory of the letter. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Th- those come together because the Jesus said, what you can know of the Father is knowing the Son, and so what you can see of the Father is seeing the Son. He told the the, uh, uh, Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is what you can see of what cannot be seen of God. The upper room and the Last Supper, he says, wait a minute, 
they ask him, can, can, can we see the Father? And Jesus says, what, you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What you want and what you need are in the gospel. Being discerning enough to break that down is where Paul begins. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace from God and the Lord, the master, Jesus, who is the Messiah. All of those phrases will be unpacked in great detail in these first 14 verses and especially getting into chapter four. So in NASA, they said, we wanna be ready for launch, a go for launch. Do you see where this sets up everything we need to understand and pursue and apply the book of Ephesians. You have to know who the author is. It's the Holy Spirit through Paul. You have to know who the readers are. They're people who lived in the world and not of the world. They, they lived in Ephesus, but also in Christ Jesus. We live in Kansas City and as a believer in Christ Jesus and the divine engagement in Ephesians. All of this summarized is grace and peace and it comes from God, from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source. It's a divine engagement to read this epistle. So we're ready. We know the author, Paul, who's an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God. We've identified the readers called believers who have been united in Christ. And we've prom been promised that what we need and what we want most are found in the salvation that Ephesians will describe. I trust, if your heart is anything like mine, we read this and know the introduction that it gives us to what's to follow and that gets you pretty excited and let me tell you again you don't have to wait for us to study your favorite verse you can read ahead you can memorize you can thoroughly immerse yourself in Ephesians even today it tells us about how we can be saved by grace through faith and live abundantly and peacefully and gracefully in the gospel I hope that this introduction by Paul what he says tees you up to be ready to dive in and oh what an immediate deep dive it is next week is just verse three and I think we can get through it in a week but I'm not making any promises